Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 10th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There are very serious questions about openness, transparency, consultation and honesty when it comes to deciding the future of the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan because right now there is no openness, there is no transparency, there is no consultation and it cannot be said that people are being treated honestly. In recent weeks uh, this programme has pursued the HSE, the Department of Health and the Minister for Health for answers. The Minister, Stephen Donnelly, has refused our requests to be interviewed. The HSE has gone to ground and the Minister has not responded to whether he has or has not placed a second gagging order on the HSE. The best information we have is that Stephen Donnelly was told last November if the emergency department in Navan does not close, it could result in poor patient outcomes or unnecessary death. The minister, it seems, failed to act. In March, the HSE decided to close the unit at the end of June, and again the minister failed to act. Until June, it seems, when he instructed the HSE not to close the emergency department. On the 21st of June, the minister told the Dáil a period of consultation would need to take place, but nothing appears to have happened. It seems the minister didn't act and failed to discuss the HSE's concerns with anyone. In July, this programme asked what was happening. We were told by the department that a review of the situation was taking place. The HSE said it wasn't, but a review would commence the following week. That was the week beginning the 25th of July. We asked, what are the terms of reference, or the job spec, if you like, for the reviewers? We also asked, who are the reviewers? How were they selected? And who is heading up that team? We were not responded to. 
Last week, Minister Helen McEntee told this programme she expected the terms of reference to be published. But Minister McEntee didn't know who was conducting the review, but that we could expect the terms to be published sometime this week and that it would be September or 10 months after Stephen Donnelly was warned before the minister would act on the advice from the HSE that somebody could die in the unit if he didn't act. The short version of all this means that the future of Our Lady's Hospital in Navin's emergency department is to be reviewed by a team of unknown people who have not been told what they are expected to do. Yeah, it really is a, a bizarre situation. And the question now is not if someone is playing games. The question is, what game are they playing? Why is it proving impossible to get information about the public health service? Why will the terms of reference only be published this week if they were agreed in time for the review team to start its work two and a half weeks ago? Why is the minister gagging public officials, stopping the HSC's employees from communicating with the public about their local emergency department? And why are the people in Mead being told, don't ask questions about the future of Our Lady's Hospital? It's none of your business. At least, that's the way it seems. And when we've told officialdom that that is what we will be reporting on this show, uh, no one responded to contradict us. Now, as you've been hearing, members of SIPTU's Mead District Council managed to secure a meeting with the general manager of the hospital, Anita Brennan, yesterday. Let's speak to Sean Murray, who's SIPTU's shop steward in the hospital. Good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us. Good morning, Michael. Can you tell us? Good morning to you, Sean. Can you tell us what information you managed to secure? Well, uh, we met with our last Thursday, and it was a very constructive meeting. As in that, we kind of we we did ask for the terms of reference on the review and the members of the committee, and on our response that Anita still hasn't got that information herself, so she can't give us any clarity on either of those points. So she doesn't know what the reviewers are going to do. Does she know who the reviewers are? At this moment in time, she doesn't. Does she know anything about the review? She knows that the review is going to go ahead, yes. Did she say where she heard that from? She's part of, as the hospital manager, She the, the review that was asked by Mr. Donnelly is going to go ahead. And is as, as far as you, you reported that, it's already started. But on, on the review we got from Anita, that it's... Uh, it's there's just no information on the review at the minute that the terms of reference aren't out, so there's no information that can be given out. And that when she does get it, she forwards to our union and the wider trade unions. Have you ever heard the like? Yeah, yes, uh, for years. <laughs> for years, it's always been the same. But uh, as far as to meet this committee meeting with Anita, we were trying to get some information for the community and the, and the wider counties around and for SIPTU members in the, in the community mm. that if this review says that the A&E is closing and that it's going to become a 24-7 MAU, what was in place for the future of Navin Hospital and yeah. what, was going to, what was going to happen and what, what uh, investments were going to be made short, medium and long term. Okay. Uh, do you think that's what the review is doing? or should we, I mean, we're, we're pulling at straws, aren't we? 
Yeah, well, the, as far as the review goes, that's kind of on on the meeting we had. Mm. Like we just we, we look for the terms of reference, and and basically, Anita hasn't got them. I, 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 I imagine I imagine the manager in the hospital looked for the terms of reference herself. Yeah, yeah. That was her uh, her reply. Did she it, did she tell you that the emergency department was going to close? No. Okay. Until, until the minister makes his decision. But the minister has decided he wants the emergency department to close. He, he's made that very clear. He just isn't sure uh, if uh, closing it would be worse than the already dangerous situation. Yeah. But what was on Anita, which was very helpful and very, very uh, uh, broad on her answers, she was she gave us full disclosure on what planned short, medium and long term if the a is to be reconfigured into an MAU 24-7. Okay, so SIPTU is planning for such an eventuality. It's your expectation that the ED will close? Yeah, well, what we were hoping for was that more information could get pumped out to the public sooner than later and not after the fact, which seems to be going concern at the minute. Everything is coming out after it happens. That, that you want to know... What Thank will happen, God. you want to know what will happen when the emergency department closes, before the emergency department closes, because yes. you're of the very clear impression that the emergency department is closing? Not, not like hearing from the minister. Okay, but the minister uh, has yeah, said know, that yeah. there's concerns from Drogheda and elsewhere, but he has said that he can't oversee a dangerous situation, although it appears as though he'll preside over one for at least 10 months, uh, because you either do something about it or you don't. Uh, and I suppose that's one of the arguments that has been made at this stage, Sean, that if it's dangerous, uh, take out the danger, put something in to uh, build up the hospital so that it's not dangerous until you go ahead with this configuration. Yeah, but that's kind of where we were going. Like we we were asking, what happens if Minister Dandy says the reconfiguration goes ahead? What's in place? And and we we got some answers from Anita yesterday evening. Yes. To the quest, some of the questions we've asked. I see that, and uh, the first one was about those terms of reference, uh, and uh, the yes. hospital manager says uh, that they're seeking them themselves. Yes. Okay. Tell us. <laughs> I don't know. The third secret of Fatima was bad enough. Uh, but t- tell us uh, more uh, about um, your um, questions uh, that you had to Anita and the responses that you got, if you would. Yes. Uh, we asked about the GP involvement in, in the MEU in particular and confirmation that they were part of the review and clarity on the GP letters and the patients and how they would get the arrival on the MEU. So, like, Anita's answer to that was that the, she can confirm that the GPs are represented at current review groups and also at the local integrated care. But of course she can't, uh, she, she can't say anything about the review because she doesn't know anything about the review. The hospital yeah. manager doesn't know anything about the review. So, on that, like, our, our biggest uh, problem with GPs is that everybody knows at the minute it's so difficult Mm. Like this is all from a public side, a, a community side. That I know from myself. If you ring a GP, it's impossible. You're left hanging on the phone for ages, like up to an hour sometimes. Mm. Then when you do get through, you're told maybe you can see you in two or three weeks. Mm. So how is this going to help an MEU department if it does turn into an MEU? How are people going to get the transfer to it from the GPs? Well. And she was given clarity. She gave clarity in the letter. Yeah. Uh, it, again, it will come apparent, and the review group work and comes to a conclusion. So, 
So she doesn't know. Yeah. She doesn't know yeah. uh, 100% on it. Yeah. But the, the, nothing can go ahead without the GP services being in line. Yeah. But... I don't understand the response uh, and I got it just as we were coming on air uh, yeah. and thank you for saying, sending it on to us. Uh, the hospital manager in Navin has told SIPTU that she can confirm that GPs are represented at the current review group and as always at the local integrated care community LICC. How can she confirm that if she hasn't seen the terms of reference? Well, no, to see outside the terms of reference for the review on, on the original reconfiguration the GPs said they were uh, up for it, that they could run with it. Oh, I know, but... they but, were but, able but, to do it. So but, uh, that's where I think she's going on that. OK, well, then, uh, when, when she says yeah. the current review group, I would have thought that this was this review uh, that apparently has been going on for the last two and a half weeks, uh, but she doesn't have the terms of reference for and really... Uh, in fairness to her and it's no fault of hers because if she hasn't been given no, the information you not. can't expect her to have the information no, no. Uh, and it's the same with everybody and that leaves everybody talking in a, a vacuum uh, and obviously she's taken the time to meet with you uh, and uh, to answer all of your questions best she can because uh, you sent a list of questions and she responded to each of them best she could yes. but there's still yeah. no concrete information is there? No, the only uh, the, the information as far as for the, the the closure reconfiguration of the A&E, not everything is still up in the air, as in there's, with, with no terms of reference, nobody has anything. But with the investment, short-term, long-term, she had a nice, she put a nice basis out there of stuff, of things that will be coming into the hospital as part of the, the reconfiguration of the hospital. Mm. You sent nine questions uh, to the hospital manager after a meeting yeah. uh, with her. Uh, one of them wasn't answered, and that's to do with the emergency service protocol that's in place in case there's a major incident at Tara Mines. Yes. Did you discuss that at the meeting? Have you any understanding of, of what will happen if there is a major incident? And God forbid there isn't. Well, basically, at what's in place at the minute, <coughs> sorry, what's in place at the minute on, on ambulances will have to bypass Navin Hospital. So what we're asking is, if it's a major, major incident, and we just picked on Bowden, that if, if that happens, like, would ambulances really pass Navin Hospital in, an, in a major emergency? Mm. And that's what Anita is going back to find out. And like, this was last Thursday, and she did give me the reply last night. So there hasn't been a big time there. So like, she has, she has said that uh, she will. Uh, Revert to the major incident plan as soon as, as she gets further information. So she is looking into that for us, as in, can Navin, like, can Navin be used if it's an MEU for walking wounded or something? That's all, like, what we want to know, like, that people are not being dragged around all the hospitals. Like, you're talking, you'd be talking serious number of people. Like, that, that's, they're not going to push everybody by Navin Hospital, or would Navin Hospital be made available to take them? Would they be part of the major incident plan? That's our question now, flatly. Would they be part of the major incident plan? But the manager doesn't know. Not at this moment. It's, she has. She is finding that out. Mm. But it seems to be uh, another another. But we have asked for more a meeting, the follow-up meeting. So. We will be looking for more information on some of these issues. Mm. From whom? From 
the Irish East Hustle Group, I hope. Well, yeah. Which we had. Good luck with that. We requested for. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. asked for the representative. I, I, think, I, I think you're probably going to get uh, some information this week because the terms of reference, uh, it seems, will we'll be published. Out. Yeah, well, uh, according yeah. to Helen McEntee, uh, who says she saw a draft of them. Uh, and I think you're going to get information in around the 22nd of August uh, because Darren O'Rourke has been told something would be said to him then. That's uh, Sinn Féin uh, TD right. in the right. region. Uh, in, in, in the meantime, it, it seems that not only are the public being told where to go and mind their own business, SIPTU is being told where to go and mind its own business. The hospital management, the general manager of the hospital is being told where to go and mind their own business. The public is being told where to go uh, and mind their own business. Uh, and all of this is happening um, without anybody giving any information. It really isn't good enough, is it? No, it's not good enough, no. I agree with that 100%, that it's not good enough. But on the on the <clears throat> short term, since we had a meeting, we would hope that there's more of this information will come available because, like, we were looking at from community, like we did request with yeah. the HSC and maybe some representatives of the IRC's hospital group hold a public meeting to have put this information directly out to the public to try and inform people exactly what's going to happen if the A&E is converted to an MAU. And the request was denied at this stage as uh, it's just not possible at this time, I think is the word in the years. So again, that was another one where we were just trying to get information but why is it not possible? But why is it? Not? I mean, fair enough if it's not fair enough if it's not possible. Uh, if you're explained why it's not possible, and this is the problem with the communication that's coming from the Department of Health and the HSE, and it seems as though the HSE is being directed by the department and by the minister, who, uh, as we heard uh, from Jerry McEntee in June put a gagging order on the HSE and appears to have put a gagging order on the HSE now. But people will understand what they're being told if they're being told uh, something logical or that we can't tell you because... Uh, we haven't agreed the terms of reference, let's say. Uh, and then you say, well, uh, how, how could the work start if you haven't agreed the job spec? Well, the work actually hasn't started uh, or we were doing some exploratory work or something, but that you would get some sort of information that you could make sense of. None of this makes sense because this is really shutting down and telling people that it's none of their business. Yes. Well, at the same, on our, from our point of view, from the District Council, when the terms of reference comes out, we would be looking for hopefully another meeting with Anita because her, she was fantastic. Her information, our, our reply, like she has replied mm. to everything. Oh, absolutely. I can like, see it, that. Yeah, it's yeah. the first time I think that anybody has given us any sort of response to anything. Mm. That was, at, at least if it was to say that we haven't the terms of reference or I, we haven't. Yeah. At least we got something. And you can't, that, that I suppose that's. I suppose that's what I'm saying. You can't fault somebody for telling you they don't know if they don't yeah. know. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, that's that, that. That's understand. That's logical, and people can understand that. But when plans are are, are underway, uh, a review is underway, and nobody can tell you anything about it. They can't even tell you who who's carrying out the review or how they were selected or anything like that, or or, or what the objective is. Is it to keep that hospital open or to close it or whatever? Uh, then people yeah. start to say, "What's going on here?" They're like, "Would you treat us like adults? We're not." School 
school children. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's so important that 7,000 people were out in the streets the last time. Yeah. Well, what, 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 are, what, what are the staff in the hospital saying about all of this, Sean? Well, the staff, they were going back and the staff were all up in the air because there was no information. Then they were give the information, the internal information about what was happening internally. Now, as from the SIP2 and an IR point, there's no job losses. In fact, there could be job gains going forward when all the new places are opened and all the new departments come in. We'd probably be looking to, to be looking to increase staff. So as far as an IR issue within the hospital for the unions, we don't really have one on the, on the services side. Like the INMO and nursing might be different, but to speaking on the services side that we look after, there's, we look after some nurses, but... We have no issues with job losses. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment uh, in a vacuum of information about what's going to actually happen with the hospital. But Sean, thank you indeed for sharing yeah. what you know with us. Yeah, thanks for the time. And uh, look, I'd just like to thank Anita Brennan for meeting with us in the first place because she is kind of the first one to step forward and sit down with anybody. Absolutely, absolutely. Sean, thank you indeed. Much appreciated. Uh, okay. That's uh, Sean Murray, SIP2 shop steward at our Ladies Hospital in Navan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're over 60 or if you're pregnant, uh, you have the opportunity to make an appointment for your next COVID booster today. Uh, Appointments will begin on Monday, the 15th of August, uh, on the 22nd for people aged over 55, on the 29th for people aged over 50, on the 1st for children aged over 12 who have an underlying medical condition or are residents of long-term care facilities. And let's speak now to Dr. Mary Scully, who's a GP with the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. A very good morning to you once again, Dr. Scully, and thank you indeed morning, for joining us. Uh, what, what, what are you expecting going into the winter? Will we need a booster? Oh, we will definitely need a booster. <laughs> That's, there's no question uh, we're seeing a lot of COVID in the community at the moment. Um, since restrictions have been lifted, it has really spiralled. Now, luckily, um, few people are getting sick enough to need hospital, but there's quite a lot of illness and therefore absence from work um, going on out there. We're inundated with requests for certs for work for the week that they have to be off. So there's a lot of it out there. And really, the booster does give you some extra protection um, coming into the winter months when everybody's going to be back indoors again. And we're going to be expecting to see a lot more respiratory illness and flu, etc. Mm. So really, I would encourage people to avail of the booster vaccine when it's offered to them. OK, I uh, see as well uh, that in October, if you're over 65 you'll be able to get a booster along with the flu vaccine, the two at the same time. Is that a fourth booster for people over 65? Um, it would be no, a fourth booster. No, it would be a third booster. Third booster. It? Okay. Yeah, third right. booster. Well, I don't know. We haven't heard anything about that yet. I mean, I would have assumed... Yeah, see, the, 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 the over 65 would have had their booster some mm. months ago now. Oh, I know. So, uh, sorry, I, time, I, I should yeah, just clarify. I, I just have the notice here from the HSE. In October, along with the flu vaccine, uh, there would be a booster uh, for people over 65 and for healthcare workers, uh, apparently. 
for COVID. Yes. Yeah, because the healthcare workers, they're a bit aggrieved about that, that they haven't been included at the moment for boosters, um, uh, you know, advised by NIAC. So, so I would have considered them to be a priority group, really, because mm. we are the people who don't want to be out <laughs> sick, yeah. um, you mm. know, when we're so busy at the moment. So I'm surprised, really, that they have not recommended it for healthcare workers now. But it's at least good to see they'll be getting it um, come October. Yeah, mm. so it's expected that the same groups of people will require an, a, their third booster plus mm. flu vaccine. And likely as not, they will be given together on the same day at the various vaccine clinics. OK, will that concern people? Will people be worried about getting so many vaccines? Mm. Mm. Well, certainly there's been a little bit of booster fatigue going on. Mm. Um, I like even the over 65s, like we had such a good uptake of the initial vaccine and yet the over 65s, there's only about 60% have taken up um, boosters um, in the over 65 group. And, you know, they are the group that are going to get ill. Um, you know, nine mm. out of 10 deaths are in the over 65-year-old group, group. So they really should be the ones availing of the boosters. So we'll be making every effort to encourage them to have both the COVID and flu okay. boosters together. And I don't mm. think that's going to be a problem giving okay. the vaccines. We do it all the time, like yeah. for travel vaccines, etc., and children's mm. vaccination schedules. You know, we're used to giving more than one at the same time. Mm. I'm really interested to hear that because you've been such a, a trusted source of information for this programme and our listeners since March of 2020, really know, since we, yeah, now, it really it? is. Yeah. And pe- people people have put uh, trust in the advice uh, that you give and I take it from what you've just said, you're advising people now, if they're offered a, a booster to take one. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely okay. take it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Even if they've had COVID and it wasn't so bad? Yes, even if they have COVID, because it does seem with this virus that your your immunity does seem to wane after a number of months. Even, you know, if you've had COVID or if you've had the vaccine, it does seem to wane after about four to six months. So if it's over four months um, that you've had your last booster or COVID, then you kind of really need to be thinking about getting another. OK. Have you met many people who haven't had COVID? My husband has not had COVID, oh, and I did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually, actually, very pleased with himself. Yeah, very, well, absolutely. There's nothing to there. Now, actually, I've heard a lot of couples like that where one has got it and the other hasn't. It's remarkable. It is. I don't know. You know, there, there is. I think um, there's some study going on in James's about people like that who've never had COVID. They're looking into why is that? Have they got something special in their immune system mm. that has prevented them from getting it? But I do know a few people, but it's actually very few and far between now. Almost everybody has had COVID at this stage, really. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, As I say, uh, if uh, you are over 60 or if you're pregnant, you can go on to hse.ie and make an appointment. The appointments will become available from Monday. Thank you indeed, Dr. Scully. Dr. Mary Scully is a a GP with uh, the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. In the coming weeks, uh, if you're 50 or older, you'll be able to make uh, appointments as well. Uh, And the appointments, if you're over 55, will be made available on the 22nd. So you'd imagine uh, in a, a, about a week from now you'll be able to book that appointment. If you're over 50 on the 29th, so about two weeks from now you should be able to book that. Uh, and if uh, you've somebody who's over 12 with an underlying medical problem, um, three weeks uh, because uh, they could be coming available on the 1st of September. Then as we get into October, uh, you'll be offered the booster along with your flu vaccine if you're over 65 or if you're a healthcare worker. 
Now, some comments coming uh, to us uh, this morning. David and Navin say, what is uh, the big secret surrounding uh, this review into the emergency department in Navin? He says, why is uh, the information so scant? It it seems that very few people know about the terms of reference and you have to wonder why this is. Oh, David, really? None of your business. None of your business, it it seems. John, thank you uh, for your call. John says he's a a member of Fianna Fáil and he says he's very annoyed about the lack of information surrounding this review. He says, I think it's about time, Minister Donnelly, let us know what is going on. And he says, I thought this government was all about transparency. Well, that's what the government has been saying uh, since elected to office, uh, John. But um, as far as we can establish, and believe me, we have tried very, very hard and not just in the last 20 minutes, but over the course of uh, a number of weeks now. When it comes to this issue, there is no openness. There is no transparency. There is no consultation. And there is very little in the way of people being treated honestly. John says it's not in the public's interest to know what the terms of reference are. I'm not sure why you say that, John, uh, but I, I think uh, he's probably... Uh, oh, yeah, I see he's not actually saying that. He's asking if it's not. Obviously not, John. Obviously not. Who do you think you are? Um, uh, Julie Churchill... I jest, John, by the way. Uh, Julie Churchill says, well done on your interview regarding Save Navin Hospital. This is a message to Sean Murray of SIP2. Julie says, well done, Sean. Uh, very hard questions to answer when the government and the HSE don't give a shit about what happens to Our Lady's Hospital. She says, I've seen what can happen when you're sent to an emergency department from Navin to the Lourdes in Drogheda. Uh, with uh, really bad stroke symptoms. 23-hour wait to see a doctor. Four weeks hospital stay then. Uh, and shame on them even thinking of closing the A&D in Avon. Well done, Sean. Murray and staff at our, our Ladies Hospital in Avon and all going out to try and save it. Uh, such a scandal, says Julie. Thank you as well for your message to the programme today. Uh, text message then uh, about this from Matthew in Drogheda asking where the government representatives are on it. Well, they're in the dark as well. It, it would seem at this stage, based on what we've heard from Minister Helen McEntee, uh, she knew more about it than most people because she saw the draft terms of reference, which are the terms of reference before they were agreed. And you'd wonder, could work start before the terms of reference are agreed. Uh, but she told us everything she knew, I think, in fairness, Matthew. Uh, somebody else asks, if there's an accident in Navin, people will have to go to Drogheda. Uh, that's right. Uh, that seems to be the case. And it might be the right thing to do. And I, 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 I have to stress that we certainly aren't saying what the right thing to do is or, or, or what the wrong thing to do is. The right thing to do might be to close the emergency department and send people to Drogheda. We are saying uh, to the department, we are saying to the, the minister... Why won't you just say that to people in Mead or, or, or explain to them what's going on? Now, you know, uh, Donald Trump was busted and he's been giving out stink about it and uh, says uh, it's unlawful and it's uh, politicising the FBI and all of that sort of thing. Uh, well, let's get some analysis on that now from National Public Radio in uh, the United States. NPR's justice correspondent is Ryan Lucas, and he's been explaining that the FBI 
would have had to take very specific legal steps before they could have raided Donald Trump's uh, residence and started a search like the one that has now become so infamous. That's right. The FBI would have had to get a warrant from a federal judge to do this. Uh, Investigators would have had to go to the court and show that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and that evidence of that crime was where they wanted to search. So in this instance, at Mar-a-Lago. Even before the FBI tasted to a judge, though, something like this, searching a former president's home, would likely have had to have been approved by officials uh, at the highest highest levels of the Justice Department. Uh, The department is not commenting on whether the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland himself signed off on this. All of that said, though, this FBI search does not mean that Donald Trump is on the verge of being indicted. It's important to remember that. And it also doesn't mean that he necessarily ever will be charged here. Mm, Isn't it interesting to think of a former president in court over this? uh, As uh, Ryan Lucas uh, told NPR, that's not necessarily the case, uh, but there will be political consequences. Right. For for years now, Trump has claimed that he's been unfairly targeted by the FBI and the DOJ. Remember, he calls the investigation into ties between his 2016 campaign and Russia a witch hunt. He's called (laughs) it that way for years. Already with this Mar-a-Lago search, he's claiming he's being persecuted again, that Democrats are trying to prevent him from running for president again. But bear in mind, the director of the FBI is Christopher Wray, a man who Trump himself appointed. Uh, But Trump and his allies are condemning this search. Anyways, they, like Trump, are claiming that the the DOJ is being weaponized. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, likely to be speaker if Republicans win in the midterm elections, uh, he's promising to investigate the Justice Department. And hanging over all of this, of course, as I've as I've mentioned, is the possibility that Trump will decide to run again for president. And, of course, this raid looking for these classified documents comes on the back of this investigation into January 6th. Attack on the Capitol that day and then the scheme to put forward a, a slate of fake, uh, fake electors. We know that two senior aides to former Vice President Mike Pence have testified before a grand jury here in Washington, D.C. The grand jury is also expecting to hear from former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Uh, then there's a district attorney in Georgia who is investigating efforts to overturn Trump's loss in that state in the 2020 election. The New York State Attorney General have a civil investigation underway into Trump's business practices. And then on the congressional front, of course, there's the House Select Committee's investigation into into January 6th. Uh, But the investigation now into the boxes of White House records and how they ended up at Mar-a-Lago, that's one that's flown under the radar for a while. It, though, has now moved uh, front and centre with this FBI search. Ryan Lucas and lots of questions, of course, for the Department of Justice. National Public Radio got to the nub of all of this by speaking to a director of uh, the Department of Justice Office of Public Affairs, former director that is, now co-host of the legal podcast Advisory Opinions, Sarah Isger, to find out what was going on. It's absolutely the procedure of the Department of Justice not to comment on, confirm, or deny ongoing investigations. That doesn't, of course, mean the department doesn't take steps like executing a search warrant that are seen publicly. Uh, But even at that point, you don't comment on it because imagine a situation uh, where the department says, well, we think this person committed a crime. It would upend someone's life. And then what if they don't find any evidence of a crime? Or what if they find some evidence, but not enough to sustain a prosecution? Or they simply don't have the resources to pursue it, even though they believe the person is guilty. This is why the department only uses its its court appearances to make public statements about ongoing investigation. Okay, but what were they looking for? Everybody wants to know what they were looking for. There's lots of speculation, but nobody actually knows what they were looking for. The FBI won't say, the Department of Justice won't say, but here's an interesting bit. Donald Trump 
could say what they were looking for if he chose to say. I am surprised if all of that warrant says is that they are executing a search for potentially classified documents and then the statutory citation for the mishandling of classified documents that the former president hasn't released that copy of the cover page of the warrant. Mm. Um, it, it obviously then makes us wonder whether there is other statutory citations there or other things that uh, potentially were listed in the warrant. Um, but, you know, the department, again, not commenting on it, is exactly along the lines that the department has, has held for decades now. It is up to the person who is being investigated at that point. They get to speak. They get to have their day. They can release the warrant. They cannot release the warrant. The department will speak when they go into court for the first time if they indict someone. Sarah Isgar, former director of uh, the Department of Justice Office of Public Affairs. She was speaking to the All Things Considered program on National Public Radio, NPR, in the United States. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Systemic racism in uh, this country is uh, deterring nurses from coming to Ireland to to live and work here. This is according uh, to uh, the Migrant Nurses Ireland group. Vinu Capelli is the executive committee member of Migrant Nurses and on the line. A very good morning to you, Vinu, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I think a a lot of us are are used to meeting nurses uh, uh, whether it's in hospitals or elsewhere, uh, who've come to work here from overseas. Uh, I'm surprised to think uh, that they're not being treated properly. Hi, good morning, Michael, and thanks for the call. Yeah, um, there's a bit of that element of systemic racism we are facing at the moment. Basically, we are an organisation, um, we are actually working along with INMO, the largest trade union uh, of nurses in Ireland, actually to improve the working conditions among the micro-nurses in Ireland. Um, we we have actually started this organisation a couple of years back, as we have been contacted by uh, micro-nurses, especially uh, you know new nurses uh, coming from from uh, overseas countries to to Ireland, mm. and from let's say from different parts of the country, uh, basically informing um, you know very specific migrant specific issues like you know discrimination or bullying or kind of racistic behaviours against them that they they had to face actually, um, and which actually which made their life terribly bad and difficult to kind of cope with. So that's a, that's what the situation at the moment, um, mm-hmm. what we're hearing mm-hmm. from various parts of the country and that, that's the whole aim of the organisation to kind of voice it sure. and to address these issues. To kind I, of, I'm surprised you know, and very disappointed. I, I think a lot of our listeners will be very disappointed to hear that uh, because as I understand it, a quarter of nurses have mi- uh, migrated to this country uh, so that's a quarter of uh, the workforce. Uh, and any time we get a call from somebody who's spent any time in hospital, they have nothing but good to say about the nurses. Entirely, you're completely right, Michael. And on top, it, it, I should be saying it's more than a quarter, I'd say, at the moment. When we go to any healthcare facilities, I'd say more than half of the nurses are overseas at the moment. And that's that's the main thing. As, as that's the situation on our healthcare facilities, we have to address those issues and need to improve and make necessary changes in order to, you know, improve the working conditions of the migrant nurses. Okay, uh, but there's problems with uh, other people they're working alongside, is it? There are people helping us, basically. Yeah, uh, like the the as I told you regarding the the trade, the the, the or helping us with this. But what we are finding at the moment is that like. 
you know, um, whenever we approach the authorities uh, to kind of, you know, to address these issues, we are finding there's a bit of resistance. You know, that's we are kind of. That's the reason why you're saying about their systemic racism. As we all know, that there are various subtle forms of, you know, racism in in various institutions. Mm. Uh, but we are talking about something like very explicit kind of racism and racist behaviour uh, in our healthcare facilities. And that's the reason why we are, you know, voicing this issue to address this. And I'm talking about both in public and private sector, um, you know, healthcare facilities, maybe in nursing homes and residential care, okay. or maybe the HSE hospitals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there an appropriate complaints procedure? There are plenty, um, according to, but there are agencies and policies and legislation to kind of prevent. Uh, so in these kind of discrimination against the culture and the language and stuff like that. But, you know, what we are seeing is, these agencies or these laws and policies are being overshadowed, you know, by the same systemic racism, which 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 is actually, you know, resistant or which is actually preventing these things uh, to be fixed or, you know, to, to, to find a solution and stuff like that. Mm. Um, we have incidents in, in, in different, from different parts of the country. There are, uh, there's a serious incident reported from the southwest of the country, uh, from the one of the teaching hospitals where these new migrant nurses being exposed to, you know, explicit racist comments by the the, the managers, um, and they act- they actually made a complaint. They they they, fought, they they you know collectively complained against it mm. by signing nearly thirty people against those who've been exposed to. But you know that person is still in that role, doing the same thing, really? even. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A little bit more. Apparently, that training manager said to a group of 30 Indian nurses uh, who had just arrived into the country that Indian nurses were dirty, that they had no hygiene. Exactly. And and this this, this is just not one time. This is multiple times. And this is during their adaptation course. 
So they are sitting and, you know, ex- expecting a, a welcoming talk or a, a, a different kind of, um, you know, approach towards them. But this is what they've been exposed to. And it's not the first time this person is very notorious in this perspective. But the sad part is the people, those who need to prevent it, are letting this happen. And they are, you know, these people are, these kind of people are getting away with us. What are they doing against us, you know? Yeah. That's a sad part. Well, um, well, 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 I mean, that comes back to the HSE, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, we, we approached them and, and we've been, we've been, you know, informed this to the top level managers and, but you know, they, as you, you know, there is a bit of cultural element in this. In, this, in, in, in fact, you know, they know if, if they, they're, they're using this technical um, terms in terms of, you know, you know, go further about this complaint, say they may be asking these nurses to go individually against this. When that comes, you know, if a migrant nurse comes in this country without any support, they don't have their family, they, don't, they can't see their family at least, you know, they, have, they might need to wait at least six months to kind of join their family. They have no friends here. They are all alone and they're helpless. And this situation being exploited in, in, a, in a different terms mm. by these agencies or these managers because they know if they've been asked individually to complain against it, they won't do it because they are not capable of doing it. They, they, they feel helpless in that perspective. But, that's I mean, the, and that's you, the main reason why we are making it as a collective voice sure, to kind yeah. of address this. But you can't do that. I mean... Um, I know, I know. But you know, you know. when we when we start to hear this, we, yeah. we couldn't even believe, oh my God, this, you won't even believe there's another incident reported apparently from one of the, you know, training hospitals in Dublin, um, very famous hospital, but, um, you know, the, these nurses been asked not to get pregnant during their first couple of years of their um, you know, employment in HSE. You won't even. How, who would say that? And how would how would they talk to, say, an, an Irish person? That would would they be able to get away with this? Yeah, apparently. This from, is what we've been talking about. Yeah. This this is what we've been talking about. That, that's why I we completely don't want to say we're getting, you know, racist, no discrimination. Yeah. But at the, at the moment, this is over the top, and we need to, we need voices. We need right, justice yeah. to kind of prevent. I mean, apart from it being completely immoral, uh, it's completely illegal. Uh, it's a, against all employment law. Uh, and you believe that uh, illegal action and behaviour like this uh, under employment law uh, is taking place uh, uh, and it's allowed to take place because it's against migrants uh, and that it wouldn't happen to Irish uh, indigenous people. I don't. I don't think so. And and I told you regarding this ex- exactly because I've always said this because in, in this is in relation to a bit of culture they come mm. from. Most of the time, um, the migrant nurses, the 90, 80% of the, the, the overseas nurses are from India. And mostly, um, among that 80%, I'd say 90 or 95% are from one state called Kerala, where people are like, you know, they, 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 their culture or there is not really assertive. You know, they are a bit self-effacing kind of people where these people can easily get away with it. In, in, in fact, Say somebody is very assertive and they they are well able to react to the injustice. And um, these people, their approach uh, towards those kind of employees would be different. So, but but unfortunately, most of the micro nurses are, um, you know, culturally, you know, non-assertive and they're a bit self-effacing, and that's that's what making it more easy for them to kind of act towards this kind of, you know, way. Yeah. Um, 
and, and they, they, these people are coming to us. I know there are plenty of other agencies to go, like there are legal system, mm. they, they're guards, they, they would be, you know, trade unions. But these people are coming to us, they may be feeling we are more approachable, you know, mm. they, they feel more comfortable to kind of um, inform us these kind of situations. Maybe we are, yeah. we can actually relate to it from our own experience yeah. and that could be the reason why, why they're approaching us. So what we're trying to do is like collectively and um, bringing this to uh, the attention of authorities to kind of make them understand and as I told, like we need, okay. we need immediate action and necessary changes yeah. in this area. Yeah, and I think you could add uh, the views of uh, the general public uh, to that plea to the authorities because uh, I hope you agree that most people in this country are are, are decent human beings and will oh, be definitely, very, definitely. very, dis- but very, very disappointed to hear that. I mean, there's great yeah. appreciation for the nurses uh, that look after us in this country. People yeah. love and nurses. We need more nurses. That's the main thing, Michael. Like, yeah. we, we, need, we actually need these people working on our floor comfortably and confident mm. rather than what they feel at the moment is like, you know, very intimidated and very, very very anxious and nervous and they are stressed mm. a lot because they are separate from their family and their 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 friends mm. they they are in a different country and on top as you all know yeah. and and on your I heard on your news headlines regarding the housing crisis mm. and accommodation issues at the moment yeah. and we are really bad on the floor with lo- shorter staff on top this is this is too much for a migrant nurse looking for uh, their career in, in, in our country okay and I, I'm sure most people listening to us as well would feel that if there's anybody who's working as a manager in the health service who tells a group of people that they're unhygienic because of the country they were born in or tells a group of people that they shouldn't be contemplating having babies for a couple of years, that they're not fit for their job. Completely not. And that's what we all feel about it. But, you know, unfortunately, these people are still working today on their same job without being asked a question against yeah. those who do those who are supposed to ask those questions are being affected by the same systemic crisis and that's what we're t- kind of trying to notify okay Vinu, we have quite a, a number of nurses that listen to uh, this program uh, and uh, i'm sure you'd like to hear from them if they'd like to make contact with you indeed yes please so we can they can actually contact us via email info at micronurses.ie okay. um, or or they, we, we can we would have this Facebook or Instagram handles and micro nurses Ireland. Okay. Well, look, we can put people in touch with you if uh, they wish to do that. Either Vinu, thank, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining That's us so uh, this morning, Vinu Kaipali, who is an executive committee member of Migrant Nurses Ireland. Now, thanks to Michael, who is an old age pensioner in Kells, who was on the phone to us, and Michael wants to know. If someone dies in an ambulance on the way to Drogheda, having passed Navan Hospital on the way, who is going to be responsible for that? It's a worry for Michael, he says. He says what's happening to the hospital is a real worry and he'd like to thank the emergency hospital in Navan, the emergency department in Navan. Uh, he'd like uh, to think that that will be there if he needs it. He says... What right has the HSE or the Minister for Health not to give out the relevant details concerning this review? He says, I'm over 70 years of age now and I'm glad I I am this age because I fear for the future. Thank you indeed, Michael. And I don't know, I think we live in a a democracy where information flows freely and transparently. But sure, what would I know? 
Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if you've seen anywhere advertised uh, to rent recently for €765 a a month, Uh, but that would have been the average cost of renting in 2011. Instead of it being €765 a month, it's now 1618 a month. This is according uh, to daft.ie. Rents have increased by 12.6%. That's uh, for the second quarter of this year compared to, to the same time last year. The average rent in Meath is now €1,596 a month. It's up 9.8% or 135% from its lowest point. The average rent in Louth is €1,448, up 8.2%, or 127% from its lowest point. Let's speak to the author of this report for daft.ie, Ronan Lyons, who's an economist at Trinity College Dublin. Good morning to you, Ronan, and thank you indeed for joining us. Once again, we're talking about uh, the most expensive time ever to rent in this country. Will it ever change? I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could say it would change soon, but I suppose the the, the silver lining is, um, and we've included this in in, in the report on uh, this occasion, and we'll be keeping track of it in future reports. Is the pipeline of, of future rental housing? So, the, 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 over the last few years, um, almost entirely concentrated in Dublin, um, a few thousand new rental homes have have opened. A few thousand are expected to open over the the next year and a half or so, and in the pipeline beyond that is over 100,000 rental homes. Now, it's a pipeline, so some of those are not going to happen. Um, Others may not be on the list and will happen in a few years' time, but at least that's in the right direction. Now, it is concentrated in the Greater Dublin area. Um, There are developments in in Dublin, Wicklow, Kildare. I think there might be one in Meath as well. I don't think there's any allowed yet in the pipeline, although I can check. Um, uh, That's not necessarily a national solution for a national problem, which this is now. We have a scarcity of of rental accommodation everywhere. um, And uh, the solution, to the extent that it's going to come over the next five years, is going to really be a Dublin and, to a less extent, Cork solution. Okay, tell me about the scarcity, if you would, because I think you've been putting these reports uh, together for 15 years or or so. Uh, Has there ever been fewer properties to rent? No, the short answer is no. That's an easier question, I guess, than the the, the, the future outlook. Um, um, There were 716 properties available to rent nationwide on the 1st of August. To put that number in context, even in the late 2010s, say 2015 to 2019, when the market was pretty tight, um, there would have been about 4,000 on average uh, available at any particular point in time. So it's gone from 4,000 down to about 2,500 last year. And then since last year, it's just fallen through the the floor in terms of uh, how many homes are on the open market at any particular point in time, just just 700. Um, Some of the numbers, if, if, you know... um, um, Limerick City, seven properties available to rent. Um, Galway City, 19 oh available to rent. These are entire cities with yeah. a handful of properties. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, it just sounds farcical uh, and hard, hard not to laugh at, but it is far from funny. Uh, it's a very, very serious situation. Why is it so bad? Uh, is it because of an increase in the population? Yeah, I mean, there's three contributory factors here. The first is an increase in demand, and that's not just an increase in the population, although that's, that's 
definitely part of it. Um, uh, like all European countries, we have become reliant on um, net migration, for example, to, to meet the jobs that we're creating and indeed to, to help pay for the, the, the pension liabilities we're going to have in future decades. And so uh, renters, when they come to, or uh, rather migrants, when they come to Ireland first, they, they typically start in the rental sector. So that certainly creates rental demand. But it's also in the, the natural increase in the population. We have a bulge in the 20 to 35 um, year old population at the moment and that is disproportionately a, a renting population. So that's that's one element of it. Mm. The second element is as things got tighter in the rental market, if you were lucky enough to have a rental home, you kept onto it longer than you might otherwise have. So the existing pool of, of rental homes comes up on the market less and less often. Uh, and then, of course, that feeds in itself. If people see things are getting bad, they're going, well, you know what, I'll stay here rather than move. And then the third factor in there is that, uh, especially in the last couple of years, and the RTV had a report on this uh, on, on Monday, um, the, uh, the number of landlords that are selling up and leaving the segment and the, the homes are going into owner occupancy. Uh, obviously, for the person who buys it, that's a good thing, right? They've found a home that they can live in as be the, the, the home they own. But from a, the point of view of a country that needs tens of thousands of, of new rental homes built over the next few years, in some ways, the sector is running to stand still. Those few thousand homes that have been added mostly in Dublin over the last five years, are they even enough to offset the, 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 the loss of rental homes in, nationwide, probably not. We're actually looking at a declining rental stock currently. Uh, and th- those three factors, that more demand, the, the market mm. itself kind of grinding to a halt, and then uh, supply actually falling um, have, have made the problem as bad as it is. Yeah, now I was asking Owen O'Brien of Sinn Féin uh, about that very last point on uh, the programme this week. Is it a good thing or a, a bad thing? for us as a society uh, that landlords are, are selling up uh, because it's a bad thing, obviously, for renters, but it's a good thing, isn't it, for first-time buyers? Yeah, I mean, it depends a little bit on, on your perspective. I think overall, regardless of where we, how we see the country evolving, the country will need lots and lots of new rental housing. And if the rental housing that's getting built is concentrated in the cities because it's so expensive to build and the cities are the only place where you can make that back, then it is a negative because we're losing rental stock. In Like all parts of the country need rental stock because it meets a certain need, especially for certain income points. Um, it, it meets a certain need at a particular point in, in the life cycle. So you know, losing you know, adding new rental homes in Dublin, but losing them in Sligo or losing them in, in Wexford doesn't sound like a great trade. Um, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the person who's bought the home in Wexford, the home in Sligo, has their own home, we, we can build new owner-occupancy homes easier than we can build new rental homes. So every time we lose a rental home, we're, we're creating a problem that is, is harder to fix, I think. All right. Uh, we hear from landlords uh, complaining uh, about uh, the um, rent pressure zones. And if they were renting in 2011, let's say, at that price that I mentioned at the moment that you've highlighted in your report of €765, uh, they'd be running at a a loss. And you could understand that they were aggrieved if the house next door was renting for €1,600. Would it be of any surprise to you if they decided to let that house uh, lie vacant for a couple of years? Uh, Because the difference uh, between... Uh, having no rent for a, a couple of years uh, would be, what, close on €20,000 uh, 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 that they'd make up uh, very quickly? Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
rent control systems are always fraught with the consequences, the unintended consequences. And and, and I won't say they were unforeseen because a number of us did point out at the time rent pressure zones are introduced that that some features in the system uh, weren't the best when you look at international experience. By all means, there's absolutely nothing wrong with um, having rent certainty for tenants when they're in a lease that they know what the rent is going to be or at least they know what the rent is not going to be more than in two years' time or five years' time or ten years' time. That's absolutely normal. Uh, Pretty much every country in in Europe has a system like that where you put in conditions like, oh, well, if it's been empty for over two years, then you can you know, reset to market rents or you're trying to control rents between tenancies. Um, that's when you get into all sorts of unintended consequences. And I think that's the, um, the system introduced in 2016. We're, we're, we're reaping some of the, um, the, the, the consequences of that at the moment with, with losing rental supply. Okay, um, I want to ask you uh, what I think might be the hardest question I've ever asked anybody on this programme, so I will forgive you if you cannot give us an answer. Um, is €765 Euro a, a month a, a fair figure to ask for rent, or is 1618 a, a fair figure to ask for rent, uh, uh, or what is? Yeah, I mean, um, what I will do is I will try and give my best answer to this, and, and for any given household, what um, economists and, and policy analysts typically say is that they shouldn't be spending more than a third of their disposable income on a monthly basis on their on their home. So, the, the, it, it, you know, if, if you're if you're a depends a little bit on what your income is. Now, what we've seen is in the rental sector, what we've seen one way that the system has adjusted is that you have say more students sharing the same property than five years ago. So instead of three students sharing a four-bed semi-D close to college, you now may have six or seven. Uh, and that's one way that rents are getting driven up as much as they are, um, is because you can add more people. That works to a certain extent. Mm. You know, it's not great if you're a student, but it, you, you can make it work. Mm. But what, what the people who get squeezed out in that kind of system are people say um, they're on lower incomes. They might have one income or one and a half income, or maybe even half of an income. Mm. And they're trying to provide a home for them and their children. They can't just split the bill with more people because they need all the rooms for themselves. And in that sense, you know, the, the 765 or the, the, the 1400 a month or whatever it is, it, it really comes down to individual circumstances. And I think that kind of golden rule of a third of your income going on housing, you know, the government can use that to design its housing supports and yes. to make sure that it's providing the, the housing for the right people at the, at the right cost. And that's from the renter's perspective. What about from the landlord's perspective? Because we hear complaints about having to pay 55% of tax uh, and uh, all of the obligations with maintenance and so on. Is it unfair in a landlord if they can only yield €765 or is it a case of them laughing all the way to the bank and just to remind people this is comparing average rents from 2011 uh, to the current day. 765 is that unfair or or is it a ridiculous amount of money for a landlord to to be taking in 1700 a month? Yeah, and again, here, the landlords are just going to, you know, 10 years ago, they were suffering from too much supply and not enough demand, and, and now it's the opposite. Um, in terms of what a fair return is, um, ultimately, what you need to come back to is how are we treating somebody who wants to make a living from uh, renting a home to other types of business? Because if we treat them like they're sort of less of a business, 
then it's unsurprising if they're going to act less professionally. And I'm not accusing any particular landlords of doing this. But we have had a sort of a, well, you know, that, that doesn't really count as a business. So, you know, mortgage interest relief shouldn't apply to landlords. That, that, that was, a, you know, say 10 years ago, that was a, uh, definitely a, a strain of thought for policymakers. We need to recognize that providing accommodation for someone is a service that should be done in a professional way. And therefore, it needs to be a business like others. And part of that is a quid pro quo. You know, landlords, uh, say uh, small-scale landlords, have always had the right to evict a tenant so they can sell their property. That's not the way it works in the commercial space. In the commercial space, if you sell your property, you'll see it on the thing, tenant not affected. Why do we have different rules for residential and commercial landlords? I mean, there may be a very good reason for it, but if we're giving uh, extra rights in that case to to landlords, um, then what is the quid pro quo? What do they not get that that other landlords get? As in parity, like treating businesses the same way, I think is a key part of that. And I'm not sure we've got that balance right. Okay, interesting stuff. Well, unfortunately, for the wrong reasons. Uh, but uh, undoubtedly, uh, people will be trying to solve some of uh, those problems in uh, the coming months. Hopefully, they'll be more successful than thus far as rents now are at their highest level ever. Ronan, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us as always. Ronan Lyons is an economist at Trinity College in Dublin and he's the author of the report for daft.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's uh, speak uh, about Truthful Dawn. What is Truthful Dawn, you may ask? Well, it's a a military operation of death and destruction that saw Israel rain bombs over the Gaza Strip and over a three-day period killed 44 Palestinians. One of them was a 74-year-old woman who was sitting in her car. 15 children were amongst the dead and hundreds of others were injured. Let's speak to Brian O'Egerta, who is the media officer for the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Group. And a very good morning to you, Brian, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, this uh, this Israeli attack, uh, dreadful, uh, in the extreme, um, can it be compared to, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Um, I would say that there's definitely parallels. You're looking at an expansionist state. You're looking at uh, what they call a special operation as well. So they're even using the same discourse. And also you're looking at politicise, which is the, the assassination of, uh, a, of, a, of the heads of the resistance organisation that they don't like very much. Now, the people of Gaza have been in an awful situation over the past 15 years with the Israeli state and the uh, Egyptian military dictatorship uh, leading a a blockade and the US and the EU going along with it. And, uh, you know, then the other side of that is targeted assassinations, what the Israeli uh, authorities will refer to as mowing the lawn, which is just repeatedly massive military onslaughts against uh, against the people of the Gaza Strip. And also, um, you know, this, this now forms a part of the Israeli electoral cycle as well. So for the current interim prime minister, Yair Lapid, and for the, uh, the current defence minister, Benny Gantz, this is going to boost their credibility going into the November elections. Right. Um, so uh, is the European Union or the United Nations or NATO or anybody else for that matter giving the people of uh, the Gaza Strip the means to defend themselves in the way that the people of Ukraine are, are being assisted in defending themselves? Absolutely not. And that's, that's a huge contrast in the case of 
the, the Middle East, um, the US is giving the Israeli military 3.8 billion of weapons annually. And then the EU, for its part, is turning a blind eye and is continuing to give the uh, give the Israeli state preferential access to the Euromed to uh, EU markets by way of the Euromed trade agreement. Now, the Euromed trade agreement gives Israel preferential access almost as though it was an EU state itself. And uh, it's supposed to be contingent on these human rights protocols, which are at the very basis of the agreement. That's what it says in the text. And Israel has never abided by these human rights protocols for even one day. So definitely, Ireland, our government should be pushing for Israel to be suspended from the Euromed trade agreement. That's one thing that we could do in relation at an EU level. Another is an arms embargo, of course. Mm. Okay. Uh, are we talking about uh, two forces with equal power? Is this a, a fair war? Uh, for example, over the three days uh, where we saw 44 Palestinian lives lost, how many Israelis died? There were none. There were no Israeli casualties. There were a number of Israeli people wounded in the south of Israel. I do believe there were a number of Israeli people wounded, not seriously wounded. But by contrast, you have, like you said, over 300 Palestinians wounded with shrapnel injuries, pieces of flying metal out of Israeli ordnance buried in their flesh. So there are awful injuries on the Palestinian side. And we forget as well about the huge numbers of people that are made homeless, that are bereaved, that are traumatised. Half of Gaza's population are children. And they're awfully traumatised, very deeply traumatised by repeated uh, indiscriminate assaults by the Israelis. Okay, and indiscriminate assaults means bombs landing possibly on your house or the house next door or on the house next door and you're then living in the hope uh, that it's not your house the next time. Exactly, exactly. And these these were surprise attacks this time around. The Israeli state itself said, their their authority said that this was a preemptive attack. And while they do, on other occasions, they do this thing called knocking on the door, which is sending a dud missile to strike the roof of an apartment block and then before they demolish it, uh, this time it was surprise attacks, uh, surprise attacks in a very crowded refugee camp, surprise attacks on multiple apartment blocks. They were aiming to assassinate certain people. For instance, uh, one of the senior officials that they assassinated, they, assassin- they, they, they murdered five children alongside him. Okay, uh, and uh, that can't be justified. Uh, I, I'm sure, uh, indeed, the death of 15 children can't be justified. But what about that senior official? Uh, is his execution justified? Uh, because the Israelis are describing these people as terrorists. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Israeli military uh, spokespeople are not known for their uh, for their respect for the facts. Uh, they tend to shoot first and just reiterate the same garbage. Uh, you know, they'll blame Palestinians for attacks. They will, in the case of the, the killing of uh, journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, there was a series of very mendacious uh, narratives put out there by the Israeli military. So I would say a lot of what they're saying, the Israeli military, has to be, has to be thoroughly examined and lots of times has to be disregarded. But uh, this has to be looked at as well in the context of politicide. Uh, Israel has labelled the, uh, the Israeli security cabinet shortly after the 2007 election. They labelled Israel as a hostile entity. This laid the moral groundwork for any kind of a vicious assault on it. And then all the time you have Israeli politicians 
uh, basically acting as cheerleaders for what is what is increasingly more or less genocide. You know, you have uh, people like the current uh, Israeli interior minister, uh, Ayla Shaked. She referred to Palestinians as little snakes and said that their their families should be destroyed. Yes, lest more little snakes be, be be raised. So this is this is really something that even conservatively should be regarded as politicised of a resistance faction that they don't like, and also. Uh, has to be regarded as as an incremental genocide of the Palestinian people. Okay, it's surprising that people continue to live there. Uh, or to put that in another way, it's not at all surprising to see people flee Ukraine. Why are people not fleeing Gaza? It's hermetically sealed, so people can't get through into Israel generally, um, and generally people can't get through into Egypt either. So the the Egyptian military dictatorship is complicit in all of this. But, I mean, there were a number of people from Gaza, actually, it didn't make the, the media know, but there were a number of people from Gaza who were drowned uh, trying to escape Gaza by boat to perhaps Greece or to, or to get to Europe recently. So people can't leave Gaza. Now, under the Oslo Accords, which Israel never adhered to in any way whatsoever, under the Gaza Accords, Gaza, like there should have been, uh, there should have been free passage between Gaza and and the West Bank at any time, mm. you know. And besides all the awful carnage, the wounding, the bereavement, you've got to look at the the kind of everyday side of this. Well, I was well, just going it? to ask you that if the place is being levelled and you've got this blockade in place, uh, how do you go about your daily business? How do you go to work, or if you get sick, how do you go to hospital and so forth? Absolutely. If you're a fisherman, you can only go a few kilometres out to sea without being shelled by the Israeli Navy. If you're a farmer and your land happens to be near the buffer zone, which is a disproportionately large amount of the Gaza Strip, then you would be, uh, to go into your own fields to tend strawberries or whatever, would be taking your life in your hands. If you have uh, just done a degree uh, studying by candlelight at one of um, Gaza's universities, and then you want to do a master's in the West Bank, you can probably forget about it. If you are, if you have um, a, a medical condition that isn't treated at Gaza's hospitals, uh, you know, best of luck. You you won't be able, to, probably won't be able to get to the West Bank to to receive treatment. Is it even uh, sa- is it even safe to bury your dead? Uh, in many cases, it isn't. There was a missile strike on a cemetery. There was a missile strike on a cemetery this time round. So, yeah, it's an awful, awful situation. And people need to forget. I mean, people need to remember there's there's media limelight on us at the moment, which there should be. Yeah. But just for all for people to be living in that kind of way all the time. And it, it, it's naive, even from an Israeli point of view, it's naive to expect people to to acquiesce to their own imprisonment in a, in a hermetically sealed little enclave. And then that is that is the reason. And Israeli authorities are explicit about this. They would call it mowing the lawn. They would say that every few years we need to mow the lawn, i.e. launch an indiscriminate military assault on Gaza to degrade the capacities of any um, resistance or whatever resistance uh, organization there is there now, be it Hamas or be it Islamic Jihad, and to uh, have a, a, kill a disproportionate number of children, uh, kill a disproportionate number of, of civilians, and then the... the um, the international community doesn't do a thing about it. And that's what mm. we're saying. It's very, very necessary. There are a number of things that need to happen in Ireland. One is the Occupied Territories Bill. So we have, uh, I mean, the Occupied Territories Bill was launched by uh, Francis, Francis Black, Black yeah. um, mm. and it passed both mm. houses of the Oireachtas, mm. passed the Doyle, passed the Senate, and it was, it's due for examination at committee stage of the Doyle. 
And it, it was blocked by Fine Gael on a succession of pretexts, be it the money message, be it all, all different things they were saying. Uh, none of us had a shred of credibility. The Occupied Territories Bill needs to go ahead. Mm. Also, the Ireland-Palestine Ireland, Solidarity Campaign and 100 other civil society organisations have currently a um, European Citizens Initiative. This is an initiative, it's a formal legal mechanism, that when we get a million signatures across Europe, and we're most of the way there, we will get there, when we get a million signatures across Europe, the EU will be forced to discuss and to enact legislation to okay. ban illegal settlement okay. produce. All right, tell us a little bit more, just uh, briefly, if you would, please, Brian. If people want to uh, sign uh, the petition as such, uh, what did they do or yes. how did they do it? Absolutely. So our website is www.ipsc.ie forward slash ECI. So that's ECI, European Citizens Initiative, www.ipsc.ie forward slash ECI. And we would really appreciate if people could support that important initiative. Okay. Brian, we have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Brian O'Egerta, who is uh, the media officer for the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Global Action Plan is an environmental organisation and it's appealing to you in this warm spell to save water by stopping watering your lawns and cutting down the amount of time that you spend in the shower. And it has a lot of good tips for those who are environmentally conscious as to how you can save water. Let's hear some of them now. Alex Wyatt is the Education Coordinator with Global Action Plan. A very good morning to you, Alex, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I take it when you say we flush the toilet on average eight times a day, we go to the toilet eight times a day, do we? Um, it would seem so, yeah. This, okay. uh, this is um, based on research that within uh, within Irish um, communities as well. And yeah, so flushing the toilet is one thing that we can do that just to be a little bit more conscious about how much water we use as we do it. Uh, when we're flushing the toilet, it can use up to um, eight, uh, 1,800 litres of water in a year. <laughs> but um, if everybody just like flushes just a little bit uh, less or a fewer times in the day, then, uh, you know, if you go down to five flushes a day, for example, uh, then you, you're saving a little bit of water there. OK, well. if it's yellow, let it mellow, isn't that what they say? Exactly what they say, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. another thing you can do with the toilets as well is if you've got a brick, um, put it in your cistern, mm. and that way kind of filling up the, the cistern will fill up a little bit faster, which is obviously an advantage sometimes if you've uh, a busy household like ours. Um, and then also, uh, yeah, then you're, you're, you're using less water to fill up that cistern as well. OK, because it'll only use the water that's in the cistern, so if there's less water, less water will be used to flush it. Uh, you've uh, a number of uh, tips uh, that you're asking uh, people to take on board. One of uh, them uh, to do uh, with the tap that you have, or all of the taps you have in your house, uh, and make sure that none of them are leaking, obviously. Just going around and checking them, um, and just being being aware that a drippy tap, you know, that kind of that drippy tap really can accumulate and can uh, can start to, to waste a little bit more water as well. There, so going around and looking mm. at the taps, and maybe if it needs a new washer or something, putting that in as well, or if it just needs to that little extra turn, just just give it that extra turn because even a, even a dripping tap can. Uh, can waste a lot of water it can accumulate over time all right now a little bit like the brick in the cistern you can reduce the amount of water you use when you turn on your tap um yeah absolutely well just um uh, these so sometimes when you're showering i know that the um there's such thing as a low flow aerator which um 
which kind of regulates the amount of water that's coming out of the shower and then uh, and then um, yeah uh, saving saving water in that way as well. Another really hot tip as well that I found that I was really really interested in is um, is out for the garden. Um, when you're um, you can use that you can collect rainwater from the roof of say your shed. This one requires a little bit of setup, yeah. but um, by putting a uh, putting a, a water butt at the bottom of a drain pipe. You can get that, that runoff from the roof uh, and collecting it in the water butt. It's something that we used to do all the time with water butts, but uh, maybe we're a little bit less conscious of now. And that grey water, we call that grey water, and that's really, really useful for loads of different things. Mm. That might be great for watering your plants. That might be great for washing your car as mm. well. Um, and just it t- t- takes a little bit of the pressure off the, uh, the water systems that are going on around us. No, it's particularly good for the plants. It's much, it, like, it's much better than tap water for your plants. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they love a bit of rainwater. Yeah, uh, good for your pond. <laughs> exactly, correct. <laughs> All right. Um, you're also uh, asking people uh, to bring their own bottles with them. That's right, yeah. Just um, bringing a bottle of water um, out when you're going out and about. I mean, first of all, it saves on plastic, which we all know is, uh, is, is really, really useful as well. But then also it kind of makes sure that you only drink, you know, what you need and, you know, buying the, not, rather than buying water, that you fill up a, a water in a, in a cafe or a restaurant. Um, often I find that when I've been out and about all day and if I've filled up maybe in a cafe or a restaurant outside and I come home with half a bottle of water, I've got, oh, what do I do with this half a bottle of water? Rather than throwing it away, mm. I might use that to water in my house plants or um, give, it to, give it to the dog as well because uh, you know, dogs don't really too mind, mind too much about uh, water that's a little bit old. Well. Yeah. So um, mm. just, I think the message is always just be, be water smart. You know, recycle mm. water if you can or reuse it. You know, don't. But try not to throw it away, and you know if you can if you can find another life for water again and again and again, uh, you know it's really a really it is it is a precious resource. I think we think that we have so much of it in this country, and often that's true. But at times like this, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the water system around us, and we really need to be just a little bit more conscious about how we how we use that. All right, uh, the most controversial of all the tips uh, that you're offering people, uh, I think, has to do uh, with uh, whether you eat meat or not. Mm, that could be a pretty controversial one, yeah. Tell us. <laughs> well, I mean, meat is thirsty. Mm. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, growing cattle, uh, growing cows, um, growing chicken, growing pig, uh, por- pig pork. Um, it, it, meat takes a lot of water to um, to, to fill itself up, and it's mm. just generally in our lives, I think. We need to think about the water that's hidden yeah. Yeah, in in um, in the meat that we eat. In the meat. What, what do you think of what's going acro- on across Europe now? Uh, the droughts uh, across Europe, particularly in France. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it is um, it is a pattern that's going to, to 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 continue on into the future, right? We we have less water. We have more erratic seasons. We have uh, have changes in the rainfall, and then hotter days like today. Mm. Um, and you know, this is this is something that we're going to have to, to, to get more used to and be a little bit more wise about and be more careful about how we behave out in the sun, how we behave in the heat and uh, yeah, and what we do with our resources um, mm. as well on the future. Yeah, well, we can't live without water. I mean, it really is uh, very worrying to uh, see some of uh, these rivers run dry, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And, um, and you know, this is a pattern that's going to continue all around the place. But just if we can be a little bit more careful about how we each meet our own needs, then we can try and make sure that our whole communities have have um, have water. So when we're asking people to be more conscious about uh, using and saving water, it's not just sort of um, for, for the sake of, of, of the water around us, but it's, it is genuinely so that somebody else can have that drink, or so that we can we can all play that part in our community to to get all the you know to okay. get the water that we all need. 
Alex, thanks for talking to us this morning. Good to talk to you. Alex Wyatt, Education Coordinator with Global Action Plan. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 660 4237. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.